Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. happens when seeing is no longer believing, when public figures are recorded saying and doing things that they never said or did, when companies have fake and altered content uh, being placed on their platforms, content with significant and potentially disruptive uh, content, both socially, economically, and even politically. What happens to a society where the foundations of truth are continuing to be eroded by our own lying eyes? This is what we're going to talk about today. The looming challenge of so-called deep fake media. Media that realistically portrays things uh, that never happened or that don't at least correspond with reality. Joining us for this conversation is an amazing group of people. Please allow me to briefly introduce all of our participants so that we can quickly move through the formalities and into the heart of our discussion. First, we have Senator Marco Rubio, who I trust most of you know. Senator Rubio was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 2010, where he represents the great state of Florida, Among other committees, Senator Rubio serves on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the Committee on Foreign Relations. Senator Rubio, thank you for being here. After Senator Rubio's comments, we're going to hold a panel discussion with our other guests. And for that, we'll be joined by Professor Danielle Citron. Danielle is a law professor at the University of Maryland, where she teaches and writes about privacy, speech, and civil rights. Her book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, tackles the phenomenon of cyber civil rights, cyber stalking. And she has another book project that will continue the exploration of privacy in the context of the Internet. She worked with our next guest to write an outstanding analysis of of the deepfake problem, which is the backbone of this event. Her partner in crime is Professor Bobby Chesney. Uh, Bobby is the James Baker Chair at the University of Texas, Austin, where he is a member of the law faculty as well as a director of the Strauss Center, which is an interdisciplinary research center that includes a focus on the integration of security, technology, policy, and law. He is also one of the co-founders of Lawfare, and he co-hosts a weekly show, the National Security Law Podcast. Finally, we have our incredibly qualified technologist, Mr. Craig Chris Regler. Chris is a senior staff scientist and an engineering manager at Google AI. He has been a professor at both New York University 
and at Stanford University. And among his many awards, Chris has an Academy Award for his special effects and visual effects works in movies and entertainment, including things you may have heard of like Star Wars, Star Trek, The Avengers, and others. Please join me in welcoming and in thanking our guests. So we go. I appreciate this opportunity to be here. Um, thank you all for coming. I, I want to thank the Heritage Foundation for, given that we've hired so many people from here lately, what we like to call the Rubio Senate Training Center. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I want to thank all of you guys for doing this. This is a, an interesting issue to talk about. We, in our political culture today, are largely a reactive nation. We react to things after they happen. Something bad happens, and we react to it. This is an effort to try to get ahead of something, to sort of see what the capabilities are, see what the trends in society are, put them together, and anticipate how bad actors could utilize technology and technological advances in the years to come. And I'm grateful that we have this forum here to begin to talk about it, because it is the beginning, what I hope it will be both a thinking about what we can do in public policy, but also societally to be aware at every level, from the media to academia, to us as individual citizens about this reality. What we're here to talk about is something called a deep fake or deep fakes. And if you say that, I would say that 99% of the American population doesn't know what it is, even though, frankly, uh, for years they've been watching deep fakes in science fiction movies and the like, in which these incredible special effects uh, are as realistic as they've ever been thanks to the talent of, of people. But never before have we sort of seen that capability become so apparent or so um, available right off the shelf. And so even now, if you go online to certain sites, you will find comedy sites and places that put up funny videos of individuals doing or saying things. And they range from the bad lip sync ones, uh, which really isn't a deep fake, although, you know, they're funny and they can be, all the way to other things that are just designed to look real and you really couldn't tell that they aren't unless, you, uh, unless an expert told you they weren't. And then you look at sort of the trends we've seen in the 21st century and the weaponization of information. And let me just say there's always been propaganda in the world and there's always – information has always been a powerful tool to use against a competitor or an adversary. What we've never had in human history is the ability to disseminate information so rapidly, so instantaneously, and for it to have an impact on so many people uh, before you're capable of reacting to it. It wasn't long ago that if you wanted to get word out, you had to pay for it and put it on television, or you had to distribute it on paper and hope it reached people. Now you can reach millions of people within seconds, and if it isn't true, by the time you knock it down, it could take weeks, months, and maybe never. So what does that mean in the 21st century? Well, it means a lot of things. It's not just a political topic. Let's begin with the fact that you're an individual, and you're up for a job, or someone's just unhappy with you, and someone who either wants to cost you the job, the opportunity, or just wants revenge, finds a way to post a video of you saying or doing something that you never did or said. And it's highly realistic. No one will be able to tell that it isn't real. Deeply embarrassing, whatever it is they put up. And you as an everyday individual have no way to track down who did it and no way to disprove it. And people will say to you, I saw it with my own eyes. One thing is to claim you never said or wrote something Another thing is when someone actually hears you do it and say it, 
and you have no way as an individual to fight back against it. And the fact that it leaves doubt could be problematic. And imagine that applied to a business. You're on the verge of an initial public offering, or some competitor has a reason to knock down your share value on a given day, or they just want to destroy your business all the way around, and suddenly they are posting videos about your business, or maybe even the CEO of your company saying something that they never said or did. And the business damages are incalculable. And this is a real opportunity for those who want to damage the business community. And in the case of politics, imagine for a moment, I thought about this not long ago, if someone were to, and I'll, any media outlet, I don't want to pick on anyone today, but CNN, uh, <laughs> or MSNBC, or Fox, or CBS, or NBC, any of them, and someone were to send them a video of me saying something outrageous like, go New England Patriots, beat Miami, you know, something crazy like that. Um, and they were to send that video to them of a public figure taking a bribe or saying a racially insensitive or outrageous comment in what appears to be a private setting. You know, the sort of things that today are leaked as video of someone who was secretly recording a meeting. Remember the infamous 49% uh, or whatever the right, was it four, what was the number Mitt Romney used? It was 47%, 47. I knew it was in the 40s. Uh, that was videotaped by someone at a fundraising event. Imagine something like that, except it actually didn't happen. And that information is given to a media outlet. And the media outlet will call you for reaction. And you tell the media outlet, I never said that, it didn't happen. And they say to you, listen, we've got a video, it's your voice, it's your face. It was you, we're running with it, and all you have is an opportunity to react, and you tell them, I swear to you, it wasn't me, that isn't me, I was never there, that never occurred. Or maybe I was there, but I have 15 people that were in the room that will tell you that didn't happen. I do not believe, I, I think that's a very difficult editorial decision for the media to make in our current environment. And I think the likely outcome would be they would run the video and they would run it with a quotation at the end saying, by the way, we contacted Senator so-and-so, and they deny that that was them. But the vast majority of people watching that image on television are going to believe it. And if that happens two days before an election, or the night before an election, it could influence the outcome of your race. The capability to do that exists now. And a culture that would perpetuate and instinctively want to believe that stuff exists now. Because the nature of our political coverage today is driven by conflict. Every single morning, starting at 6 or 7 a.m., every news cable outlet in America begins their day by pointing to some outrage that they want you to be fired up about and then proceeds throughout the day to put two people to fight about it in two little boxes on screen, sometimes in studio. That, that's the cycle that we now have in media coverage. Find an outrage and then hire a couple commentators to fight over it. And then let's get people in politics to react to it. That's fine. We're a free country, free press. They can have any editorial decisions they want to make with regards to that. But imagine in a culture like that, manufacturing the outrage. And I assure you, it would spread like wildfire, as it would online. I don't believe there's any individual, any political campaign, any organization in America with the bandwidth or capability to knock down the spread of that false information fast enough. And I think, overall, that it is a very attractive weapon for someone who seeks to interfere in our politics and create chaos or defeat the candidate in a race. And traditionally, we would look at that as saying, well, that's something another candidate would use against you, or a dark money group, or 529, or 527, or one of these political groups. But what about a nation state? A nation state with capabilities that exceed that of, you know, 
any political party whose intelligence agencies decided to weaponize an instrument of that nature and use it to create and sow chaos in a country. Well, I can tell you, I don't believe, I know for a fact that the Russian Federation at the command of Vladimir Putin tried to sow instability and chaos in American politics in 2016. Not necessarily, as some might report, for purposes of electing one candidate over another. His primary goal was to ensure that the next president of the United States, whoever won, would be facing a cloud of controversy for weeks and years to come in order to weaken them and in order to weaken us. No matter who won that election, we would be dealing with a Russia issue right now. Maybe a different one, but we would be dealing with one. And I think Vladimir Putin sits there a year and a half later and says, by and large, it worked. We have a society at each other's throat. It was already happening, but I was able to pour fuel on that fire to make it even hotter and even more divisive and even weaken them further. And they did that through Twitter bots, and they did that through a couple of other measures that will increasingly come to light, but they didn't use this. Imagine using this. Imagine injecting this in an election. And I want people to understand that this is goes, these sorts of threats go well beyond an annoyance. I want to take you back for a moment to Florida in the year 2000. We had a race in Florida in the year 2000, and that race was decided by less than 600 votes in one state, a big state, but one state. It had an additional complexity to the race, and that is that the Republican candidate for president, his brother, was the governor of Florida at that time. And I want you to imagine for a moment if at some point on the day of the election, um, in some county in the state, 600 Democrats went to vote, and they were not allowed to vote because they no longer appeared on the registration rolls of that county. And that information in this environment were fed to cable news outlets or partisan media groups who would immediately jump all over it as an effort by a Republican-controlled state to deny Democrats the right to vote. Seven, 600 Democrats didn't vote because they weren't allowed to vote, and the candidate won by less than 600 votes. This is an illegitimate election. That would be the argument that would be made. And the truth is the courts would decide, and in hindsight, election officials would prove these people got provisional ballots, and they were allowed to ultimately vote. None of the, All of that stuff would get lost in the broader debate, and you would have a commander-in-chief of the most powerful armed forces in human history being sworn in with a significant percentage of the population and I would dare say a significant percentage of the armed forces who at a minimum had doubts about whether the person who won the election actually won it, election actually won it. That is what disruption would mean if someone could get into our electoral systems and change registration. Add to that the ability to influence the outcome by putting out a video of a candidate on the eve before the election, doing or saying something strategically placed, strategically altered in such a way to drive some narrative that could flip enough votes in the right place to cost someone an election. You put all that together, and what you have is not a threat to our elections, but a threat to our republic, a, a constitutional crisis unlike we have ever faced in the modern history of this country. This all sounds fantastic. It all sounds exaggerated. It all sounds hyperbolic. The capability to do all of this is real. It exists now. The willingness exists now. All that is missing is the execution, and we are not ready for it. We are not ready for it, not as a people, not as a political branch, not as a media, not as a country. We are not ready for this threat. And maybe it will be Russia. They're the likeliest culprit, but it could be anybody from a transnational group to cyber hoodlums and, and vigilantes who think they're going to you know, take people on. 
It could be anyone. Because one of the ironies of the 21st century is that technology has made it cheaper than ever to be bad. And so in the old days, if you wanted to threaten the United States, you needed 10 aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons and long-range missiles. Today, you just need access to our internet system, to our banking system, to our electrical grid and infrastructure. And increasingly, all you need is the ability to produce a very realistic fake video that could undermine our elections, that could throw our country into tremendous crisis internally and weaken us deeply. And so I'm just grateful that you've provided us this forum to begin this conversation. You all look very scared now, so good. <laughs> but it's a threat, and it's one we should be ahead of. And, um, and, and one that we should be aware of, and one that we need to be, I don't have every answer. I know awareness is part of it. I know educating people, including producers and editors, but also political figures and others about this capacity is important. And uh, I know that's one of the answers, is just awareness that this threat exists. And from it, we will have to talk about how we can balance the right to privacy and free speech and all the other things that come with our constitutional protections with our obligation to protect our country, our constitution, and our republic from mayhem, chaos, madness, and instability. And it is a 21st century threat that no one's ever been presented with. And so we have a lot of work to do, and I hope today's the beginning of it. And I thank you for giving me the forum to do it. Thank you very much. Hope we're not a letdown, friend. Great. <laughs> Good job, Ashley Collins. I would, I would love to tell you that it's going to get lighter. Yeah. It's not. Uh, but we do think that we can provide some helpful context that will enable all of us to think more deeply and hopefully profitably uh, about the challenge. Um, so, Chris, I want, I want to begin with you from, a, from okay. a pure technology standpoint to really help to give us a little bit of context and to and to flesh this, this challenge out a little bit. So fake video, Senator Rubio mentioned this, fake videos and, and, and altered media, that, that's been around for a while. Um, there does seem to be, however, a perception that the challenge of deep fakes, that, that that's kind of coming into its own. I wonder if you could help us understand what technical advances, what, what are the drivers behind that reaction? Okay, um, well, thanks for inviting me to this panel. Um, yeah, as Senator Rubio also mentioned, um, it's nothing new to generate fake faces. Uh, it was in the hands of visual effects studios. Uh, it was very hard to do. You need armies of visual effects artists and very complicated systems. But what happened recently is several universities and other entities started publishing um, systems. Um, some of them are called puppeteering systems. That means you take lots of video of somebody and then you use machine learning to change the lips or change some other parts of the face and then it looks like that person said something different. Um, last year there was an entire session at the computer graphics conference and there was like a, uh, like a big leap forward how this works. Um, and then also um, uh, you've heard about, well, deep fakes what does that mean? Deep means deep learning or deep neural networks. So neural networks usually, they're also old, as old as like 50 years. 
they, they used to be like very small number of units with small number of connections inspired by the brain. And then 10 years ago, people figured out because the computers got so much more powerful and uh, there was so much more memory available, you can now build like the deep comes from like you have instead of one layer, hundreds of layers, and in some cases, billions of connections, and they become very powerful, the connections can be learned. So this happened in AI. And then academics started using that for generating better faces, images of faces, but still, uh, the visual effects industry is still better in generating that. The great thing about visual effects is you do a good visual effect if you cannot detect that it was a visual effect. You've seen lots of movies and it was fake. Um, now what happened with this deep neural network based face generators, they were not that accessible. They were written by graduate students at universities, very hard to use, and you could debunk them really easily. Uh, I don't want to put down the group. There's a lot of progress. Um, but then um, just recently, actually, almost it was like in um, December last year, somebody posted on Reddit. It was actually uh, uh, discussed uh, a few months before, but somebody posted code that can do that, a deep fake code um, with like a deep network and then if you have um, some software engineering skills, you can download that code, turn it into an application, collect a bunch of examples of faces of the person that is there in the video and faces that you want to replace it by. And then you buy like a graphics card that costs less than like $1,000, like a, it's called a GPU card, and let your system run on your home computer or your laptop for sometimes several days or one day, and then it creates a deep fake. And then uh, more recently, um, like an entire community evolved out of this, and they're generating more and more techniques of deep fakes. And this goes also in parallel that neural networks usually, the, um, they can do very good in detecting, this is a face, this is a house, this is a car, sort of like one bit decisions. Like, um, but the recent advances in neural networks is now I can generate um, an image of a face. That's something completely new that we didn't know how to do five years ago. Um, and so um, they, they generated this one thing called fake app. You don't have to have software engineers anymore. You just download it on your PC and run it. And so um, that changed the game. But it has a lot of um, parallels with what happened 20 years ago when Photoshop came out. So um, people Photoshopped photos and at the beginning people were believing it. Uh, and now we're sort of sensitive to it. Oh, this is a Photoshopped image maybe, I cannot believe it. And now with the deep fakes actually already there is arguably a lot more awareness like, oh, this might be a deep fake. We, we don't trust videos that much anymore. So, so just on that, how, how hard is it? So you, you mentioned previously, you know, you could look at it and go, oh, okay, that's clearly not, that's mm -hmm. not real. Um, but how difficult is it currently to detect a deep fake video? And then is it safe to assume that the forensic capability will evolve as quickly as the, the deep fake capability itself? In other words, will our ability to find these things out as fakes always be in parallel with the generation of the fake? 
That's a good question. So um, most of the deep fakes that are out there are actually very easy to detect, even with the untrained eye. Um, what happens a lot is the face is flickering a little bit, the eye blinks are inconsistent, then there's all these things. When, when I speak, um, I have head motions and the lips are like correlated to my head motions. The deep fake doesn't do that. Um, there's also like amazing stuff like MIT, uh, Bill Freeman's lab developed something where you can enhance the color channels in the face. And then if you have a real video, you can actually detect just by the, the change of redness, what's the pulse rate of that person. A deep fake cannot do that. So this is sort of more like the trained forensics experts can use that. And then as soon as deep fakes came out, and even before that, many years before, an entire new uh, scientific community evolved that uh, first looks at Photoshop images and comes up with techniques that can detect, oh, this, this sequence of pixels is wrong, this area of pixels is wrong, and so on. And then as soon as deep fakes came out, um, they also started building systems that can detect if it's a deep fake, can tell you where the deep fake is. And then also another very interesting um, research direction is where it originates from. It's called provenance. Um, so um, I think um, you can say it's a cat and mouse game or like an arms race. And um, depending to what expert you talk to, the detection algorithms are actually ahead of the fake algorithms right now. So Bobby, so in, in addition to, to those types of things, um, we, we see several companies coming up with digital solutions like digital watermarks and, and other kind of persistent metadata embedded data uh, in these videos. Um, won't that solve it? Right. No. Uh, the reason why it won't automatically solve it is it depends on what kind of uptake of that sort of detection and provenance type technology we see. The, the main thing we need to be concerned about are deep fakes or any kind of fakes, but especially deep fakes that can propagate widely and quickly. That's, that's where it's going to interact with our cognitive biases and the filter bubbles we all live in and, and spread as misinformation and have an effect such as the senator described. That is primarily going to be a function of the major platforms, both old media and new, whether, whether we're talking about what the nightly news carries or what can be circulated on Facebook or Instagram, et cetera. Um, if those platforms as gatekeepers decide to embed as, as a form of filter uh, requirements that video or imagery bears the right watermarks or the right hallmarks of a, of a provenance confirming um, you know, validity uh, type system, great. But there's no particular reason to think that that's going to happen immediately. I mean, there's a, there are a million variables there, right? So there are a lot of different entities out there trying to develop these watermarking and other sort of validity and provenance solutions. Um, which one gets to be the winner? You know, is, is it Betamax or is it VHS? Um, there, there's going to be a lot of variability. Um, and insofar as Let's say there's some kind of coordinated action which presents its own kind of issues, but if there were, and, and everybody who really needs to decided, you know, we're all going to settle on on this new thing that Chris has invented, and it's great, and we're going to we're all going to use this. If it's cumbersome and acts as a real sort of friction point for for users like all of us who are just putting up all this user-generated content on popular sites, unless they all do it, 
and there's really no other place you'd want to be but the sources that use that. You might find it to be a bit of a pain. It sure is easier to download this other app or this other type of platform. I'm going to go, you know, MySpace comes back, and suddenly they don't have these filters, and they're really easy to use, and it's more fun and interesting what goes on there. So uh, it could be the case that that sort of protection will be built into the platforms that are going to spread this, but I'm a little skeptical that that will happen anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, you could imagine um, the emergence of, uh, and, and, and you and Daniel actually mentioned this in, in your paper, uh, the the emergence of, of some type of, of embedded verification and even even kind of personal tracking, geolocation where you've been in the past, so that you know you can imagine if you're of someone of public importance, um, and and, a, and a, one of these videos comes up, you might want to be able to demonstrably show that no, I, I wasn't even in that building, I, I was never there. Um, so when you when you consider those types of technical solutions, Daniel, particularly. What privacy concerns start to come up? Are, are you concerned about that? I think that's what motivated us to write this paper. The, the idea that we would worry that um, we would lack some accountability for where we are, um, that we might unravel our own privacy to protect ourselves from deep fakes, that we might, uh, that we're going to see a market desire for like life logging. They exist, these services, right? Our phone is essentially logging where we are all the time, right? So that we are engaging in all sorts of activities where we're often tracked and traced, right? And categorized in all sorts of ways. But the idea that we would need to do it as a matter of self-defense and that if we didn't then do it, it would suggest there's something that we're hiding from others. And I think that's what, for Bobby and I, what troubled us so much was that we know there's incredibly, and we could talk about the destructive capabilities for individuals and for society, uh, that the harm is real, immediate, it's visceral, it's palpable, it's, it's significant. But there are also longer term concerns that we might unravel our own privacy in ways in the longer run is incredibly troubling uh, and gives an extraordinary amount of power right, to companies and governments who have access to those, imagine those reservoirs of data, right? Uh, that I think really worried us. I'll talk just a little bit on, because I want to come back to the, the privacy and, and the, the broader implications, but you raised a good point in terms of the, the personal implications of one of these. So if you're an individual citizen, for, forget a public figure, just anyone in this room, uh, and this capability to build one of these videos is democratized fully, and all of a sudden some ex-boyfriend or yep. girlfriend can rape yours, what are some of the implications? I mean, you've written about cyber-stalking. What happens? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, this comes up. We really all, it, this issue grabs our attention because what we saw were red, subreddits devoted to deep sex fakes, right? So putting a celebrity's head onto real pornography. And so what you're doing is exploiting someone's image uh, in ways that make it seem like they're having sex, which, of course, they're not. Um, and the kind of theft of one's identity, right? You can imagine being reduced to a sex object. You never decided to do that, right? But the peril, especially for people who are not public figures, is uh, imagine the kind of damage that you do now that it's not that you shared a nude image or you allowed an ex to, to take a video, right, which in trust and in confidence is often misused, right? And victims are already punished for having done so even though they've done nothing wrong, right? But now that we have these apps, you can easily download the capability of uh, creating these kinds of harms now you don't have, have to have ever taken that selfie that you got coerced into sending someone, or you agreed to share. Now we can literally create sex videos 
um, about anyone, and you can see it being misused in domestic abuse, right, um, amongst partners. And you do see that. We, there was the subreddit that popped up about deep sex fakes. The narrative on the comments, this is what happens when you write about cyberstalking. It's kind of an ugly world, like the comments that I'm constantly <laughs> reading, right? You had these comments amongst people that said, you know, I have my ex-girlfriend. I've got about 500 pictures from I can harvest from Facebook. You know, someone help me make a deep sex fake. I want to embarrass the living daylight out of her, and it's not written that nicely, right? And there were there were like so many comments where people were saying like, that so and so. I can't wait to use this technology. So there's a desire, unfortunately, right? Uh, and the damage is so profound, right? Because if, if a deep sex fake is in a search of your name, it's prominent, right? In a Google search, we know that employers, over 95% of employers use Google as a way to figure out if we should interview someone or to hire them. It's not that they believe the person necessarily made the sex video. It's so much easier and cheaper to hire someone who doesn't come with the baggage, right? So not only is it incredibly psychologically damaging, right? Uh, you are, you're essentially and effectively put into a sex video um, in ways that you would never imagine you ever were, right? And it could be incredibly violent and terrifying. But now it also has an impact on your economic lives. And so, you know, that, the problem with those scenarios, folks don't lack, they lack the resources. Like to the extent there's debunking, it's almost impossible for the everyday person. And so partnerships with platforms, you know, we saw Google uh, in the summer of 2014 announce that they were gonna de-index nude photos and searches of people's names that they could show as non-consensual, what we call non-consensual pornography or revenge porn. Now, that's an incredibly important move and was at the time, right? Because what you want as a victim is not to have it searchable, right? Um, and so it doesn't solve your problem, but at least the employer, the clients, the friends don't immediately see it and anticipate it. Well, so now I'm gonna take those very real implications, pull up a little bit, particularly think about the context of national security for a moment, um, and, 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 and just kind of frame the question. Um, Senator Rubio mentioned, mentioned Russia, uh, I think for good reason. Um, a, a couple of context, uh, pieces of context perhaps for our audience. Um, in the past, uh, the Russian government has used manipulated information, uh, falsified emails, other kinds of data to uh, marginalize and, and constrain political opponents. Um, just recently, they were deliberately targeting the cell phones of NATO soldiers and deliberately feeding them uh, false information as a means of directing and, and, and shaping a, um, a battlefield. Bobby, do you think it's realistic to think that a, um, a hostile competitor like Russia or, or someone else um, might leverage this type of capability um, for its own domestic, you know, kind of consumption and, and purposes, but then even into the, the broader international environment? And if so, you know, where, where are we going? So clearly, yes, uh, as, you, as you say, Compromod and other techniques of disinformation and information warfare, you know, it's not unique to the Russians, but they're certainly past masters of it and current practitioners of it. I mean, just Im imagine, if you will, this will sound far-fetched, but imagine the President of the United States going into a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the head of Russia and no one there to take notes or to record it other than on the American side, other than the President. Things are said and everyone wonders what was said. And then, lo and behold, there's audio, hard to debunk audio that sure sounds like the president saying, 
don't worry about the Baltics. We will never lift a finger to defend them. Or fill in the blank with some other nightmarish, you know, betrayal of American national interest, in my opinion. Uh, the ability to go beyond the fakery that's already possible in the, in the your eyes tell you or your ears tell you what you heard manner makes it much more powerful. So there, there are many ways to disrupt international relations in, in making use of this technology. There are other ways it could be made use of. Um, think So co-founder of Lawfare, um, it, as I think probably many people in the room will know, Lawfare is a term that are, uh, originates uh, with Charlie Dunlap talking about the ways in which uh, someone might make a strategic use of legal rules in, in an effort to maybe hamstring an opponent. Um, Think about the ways that insurgents or other adversaries of the United States already do make use of this information to make it appear our forces or allied forces have done this or that thing. It, often it's a claim about killing civilians or, or, or harm to civilian populations. Uh, and yeah, you can, you can have actors play the role, you can impersonate and so forth, but how much the better if you can use the technology of deep fakes to make more credible uh, instances of supposed atrocities, or perhaps you'd like to inflame Israeli-Palestinian tensions, or perhaps you'd like to go domestically and inflame tensions and pick an American city where tensions between the police and, and a local community are running especially high, and let's just have that chief of police captured on video or audio saying racist things. Um, the potential for mayhem is really off the charts, and, and it's true that we can, generally speaking, eventually debunk, but the truth doesn't ever quite catch up with the initial lie if the initial lie is emotional and juicy enough. Well, and, and it's important to think about this outside of the immediate context of our own, of like kind of what happens within our borders. You could imagine how, um, again, we'll use Russia because it's a, it's a realistic and an excellent foil. Um, but you could imagine how they might use that in developing regions to shape the political situations there and where it, it, it doesn't actually, it doesn't land on us specifically geographically, but it then becomes a political situation that we are now engaging that, that may significantly influence a, a decision as to what type of support or uh, aid or deployment uh, might, um, might be forthcoming in the wake of that. So we're talking about a capability uh, in an age of media that um, I don't think it's a fair, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that could, could fundamentally shape the environment in which we're doing policy both domestic and, and foreign policy. Danielle, anything to add to that? It just makes me think of this line that uh, we have in the paper that like we have both concerns about trust decay and truth decay altogether, right? That, that geopolitical nightmare of, of a lack of trust with each other, with, in, with countries, right? And then also in different political spheres. Uh, so I think Senator Rubio started to hint at this, but he didn't have a, a, an opportunity to kind of pull the string. Is there, are there any accompanying challenges with greater awareness? So as, as we educate, as we have this conversation, are we simultaneously kind of raising a challenge uh, alongside that? Yeah, so the, the more successful we are at getting people to be aware of the nature of this problem and to cultivate their skepticism about audio and video, the more space we're creating for something we call, in the paper we call this the liar's dividend. I can't decide if I really like that <laughs> term, but it kind of captures it. There's the mirror image situation where the video is real, the audio is real. It does expose something wrong or embarrassing about some public figure, and that person has the shamelessness to deny it. This already happens, but how much more 
room is there to persuasively deny video and audio evidence when people have been pounded with the message by us, uh, beware of deep fakes. Imagery can be manipulated. Video can be manipulated. So the cry of fake news becomes the cry of deep fake news and is much more resonant because of success in getting people to be on guard. All right, so I'm just, we're going to push into this just a little bit more and then we'll release. Right, but okay, I, let's just get dystopian. Yeah. All right. How bad could this really get as you two have thought about this um, together? Okay, so that, that um, I think you've got two, two sides, almost Janice faced coin, where that seem to be totally opposite, but I think can exist together, right? On the one hand, Nothing is believable, right? We've got the liar's dividend, which, by the way, I vote for keeping it because it was Bobby's idea, and I really like it, though he's incredibly humble and doesn't, so maybe we can have a little <laughs> poll later. But um, where nothing is believable, everything, right, that, that is we all kind of withdraw into our filter bubbles, and so we all get to say, oh, no, 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 you know, like there are no truths, uh, and, and we've really done incredible destruction culturally and politically to each other, right? And at the same time, when nothing is believable politically, for individuals, deep sex fakes and the like are incredibly damaging. Because that's the kind of thing we say, oh, I believe that. Because it's going to often reaffirm a lot of biases we have, like gender stereotypes, right? For, for a woman, you see a deep sex fake, oh, you know, uh, she's incredibly available, so I'm not going to hire her, right? So while at the same time for individuals, it's totally believable and worth being incredibly costly, right? Um, at the same time, culturally and politically, we lose faith in in our public discourse, right? A and here we are, and I think to me that's the nightmare scenario. And then let's add in our what drove us to write this paper, which is the immutable sort of audit trail that we create, right? We want to take that over. Yeah, sure. If as you said earlier, Danielle, if it won't be for everybody trying to purchase some service from a third party who can be sort of a, a trusted repository of evidence, immutable audit logs that confirm, or, and hey, let's throw in the word blockchain, right, just because. Uh, <laughs> some kind of reliably trustworthy log of exactly where you were, and, and if you want to go full throttle with it, video and audio of what was going on. You've got some, some token on your, on your jacket that's just recording everything. And uh, maybe only a few people who are running for office or otherwise in especially sensitive positions, like a chief of police, maybe only they go in for it. But then along comes some employers that really want, during work hours, they want their employees to wear this because Lord knows what their employees might otherwise get up to. And you do run the risk of, of accelerating a surveillance trend and sort of an, an omni-recording of everything trend that is pretty disturbing, and it's not necessarily a world that we'd be accustomed to or wanting to live in. Right, and so imagine if in a world in which we don't trust anything, who gets to define what's true are the basically totalitarian leaders, right, authoritarians. And if we've created a sort of life log for ourselves, imagine the way in which we can be controlled. So maybe that's as dystopian as we get. Yeah, no, that's pretty dystopian. Right? Yeah, that's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty ugly, and right? And also yeah. the robots are in charge. That's right, that's right. And blockchain uh, saves us all, just kidding, because that's, that's every that's conference I go to, right? <laughs> Okay, so Chris, bail us out, man. Yeah, like what? That—that's the worst, right? That's the worst case yeah. scenario, and I—I I, I could pile on, but there's no need to. Yeah. Um, what? How is this technology likely to present itself here in the near to mid? What's the most likely next evolution of this as we go forward? So, 
I said that before, like the current deep fakes are easy to design. And uh, what happens next is to fix certain um, shortcomings of the deep fakes. Uh, people are working on making things more compatible that were not compatible, like head motions are in sync with what they're saying and so on. But um, um, when I talk, we talk, we engage with the community of researchers and other platforms. Um, there is quite some optimism out there. And I don't want to go into theory in front of this uh, audience, but there's a lot of discussion. Like um, this, this pitting or this, this um, arms race, like generator is here, detector is here, detector gets better, generator gets better, detector gets better. There is actually, there are some proofs out there that the detector will always win. That's what some people say. And then another Was thing. Was that true with Photoshop? You know, you, you had us go back there right. 20 years. So yeah. sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, there's, there's some great work out there by UC Berkeley, by Alyosha Efros' group, uh, that um, like with the deep fakes, some of the techniques need to know the software that created it. And then it's sort of more like an antivirus program scenario that, okay, as soon as a new deep fakes come up, then, then you download it automatically to your detector. There are actually very ambitious people, and, and I believe it's possible at some point that you can have a general deepfake detector um, where you don't need to know what's coming next. And so Alyosha Efros' group actually built a system for Photoshop images that, like neural networks are usually trained, these are examples of fake, these are examples of real, and you collect a lot of fakes and you look, collect a lot of reals. And then if you have a, like a, a database of fakes and then a new fake comes out that's not part of that database, you might have a hard time detecting it. But his system, his group system was trained only on real images. And then if there's something coming up that doesn't belong to the space of the real images, it detects it and it works pretty well. Uh, so uh, there are Photoshop detectors out there. It's called splice detection where you see the area and all that. Um, another thing uh, that I want to mention is, uh, and Senator Rubio started out, well, there was propaganda, there's rumors, uh, and the, all the uh, general discussion about fake news. To debunk them, um, you need uh, fact checkers and they might have bias and people might not believe it. But if we actually keep going with that speed in the research for detectors and we come up with the right interfaces, it's also like we talk to psychologists and social scientists how to debunk it. Um, it's a more objective way to debunk it. Like this pixel is false because of this reason and here's the original video. And a lot of journalism already use that like if they they actually use our platform. Um, you have a, you have an image and you don't know where it comes from. You go to images.google.com, drag the image in as a reverse image search, and then entire search results comes up. Oh, that image also appeared here, here, here. A slightly modified image appears here, and it's a standard practice already. And that's that's like a very convincing way to to convince the general public very fast. This is objectively false. So, the, the, so the, the good news is, is from a forensic standpoint, at least right now, there's reason to have some optimism about our capacity to mm -hmm. 
know definitively mm. not good. So in a court of law or, or perhaps if we're when things are really working well, a journalist before they publish on something, they run it through that system. Unfortunately, when we talk in the context of just general user content, user-generated content, uh, the, what, what I think it was Mark Twain, you know, the, the, uh, the, a lie is around the world by the time the truth gets its boots on or something. Churchill? Sounds better. Yeah. So, <laughs> I've heard that it both ways. That simultaneously yeah. cool idea <laughs> and then also right, right. gave yourself serious historical chops. Exactly, so, yeah. Love it. Well, so, I guess, I guess, so one of the challenges becomes is in one sense, like, yes, in, in perhaps the case of public figures and, and, and that kind of thing, but even then, I think we all understand uh, that um, rumor, ru you know, rumors persist regardless of, of, of what's been demonstrated um, to be to be false. Um, so and in yeah. a Google search, there isn't a right to reply. So right. if there is a deep fact fake mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, there isn't a right to have a response, at least as we see it now. So that for the especially for the individual, sure. it, it's still incredibly fake. Well, we we have terms of use in place. If if it's like a malicious content, uh, malicious con uh, intent. Or, or other things, so it can be tagged, and we can, uh, but it's a policy question. I don't want to yeah. get and too much into that. I'm a researcher, yeah. but there, no, no, there, but, uh, you have to help create the policy. The community is, yeah. is thinking about it, how yeah. to respond faster. And, yeah. You um, almost like get a first bite, mm -hmm. right? And that first bite, then once we figure out it's a deep fake, we could have a hash database where you match it and you could filter going forward like we do for child pornography. You do get your first shot though, right? Uh, unless you said so well, a journalist decides not to publish it because you did turn it into a first shot. Which we hope that would happen for us somehow. Uh, so uh, maybe the last question before we turn to some, some Q&A from the audience, but uh, we've got a good number of folks here from the Hill. So an obvious question. Why don't we just make these illegal? Won't that fix it? Define the category. Yeah. <laughs> um, so digital manipulation can't be the sufficient condition to, uh, to create the category because, of course, we manipulate video to improve the quality of images or to make pictures look cooler or make sound a little clearer. There's all, there's all sorts of ways in which you have to allow for some amount of manipulation. So that won't be enough. Could you, could you fix it with intent, uh, intent to harm through digital manipulation? I guess we kind of have a lot of laws already uh, for that sort of thing, defamation among other things. Um, so you could struggle to define the category if you want to just criminalize deep fakes as a thing or, or attach civil liability to it or, or take regulatory action as to it. The definitional challenge is huge. Um, now that's not the only way you could address it through leveraging legal means. And in the paper, which by the way, if you, if you want to actually read the paper, um, the, the quickest and easiest way, uh, Google, uh, Chesney, Citrin, Deepfakes, SSRN. That's the acronym for the website that hosts the article currently. You'll find it that way. Uh, but Daniel, maybe you could talk about uh, the, the possibility of tweaking Section 230 in a way that could place more pressure on platforms to police for this sort of thing. So with Section 230, how many people know what we're talking about? Like five lines. of you, yeah, I know, lines. and my co-author Quinta Jurassic in the in the audience. I, I won't call on you, I promise, Quinta. Um, but uh, we have something called the Communications Decency Act. Uh, it's a law passed in 1996 
um, which was really about how to rid the internet of porn, which now seems like an insane proposition, right? And much of that law is struck down, <laughs> sorry, uh, on constitutional grounds. Um, but what remains is a section that was designed to encourage self-monitoring. Because lawmakers knew they couldn't possibly rid the internet of, and they include this in the law, stalking, harassment, all sorts of criminal activity, plus a completely legal speech, which is just offensive. They wanted to encourage self-regulation. And so what, and, and there were early cases, so a case from Long Island, trial court, found that Prodigy was filtering for dirty words and that it didn't catch defamation in the case. Um, and because Prodigy had done some editing, they were found as a publisher and then strictly liable for defamation. And so what that case suggested to platforms, early platforms, AOL and Prodigy, they shouldn't do any filtering, right? Because if they did anything, they would be publishers. And so in light of that, then representatives, uh, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, um, drafted Section 230, which says that if, you're, if you don't, if you catch too much or too little in your filtering and monitoring, you're not gonna be responsible for user-generated content. Um, so when you're overly aggressive and you monitor, you have to have good faith basis. But the part of the law that talks about when you don't catch enough is, is written in such a way, it says um, an, an interactive computer service provider won't be treated as a publisher or a speaker for someone else's content itself isn't limited to the good actor, the good Samaritan who self-monitors. So that's why revenge pornographers get to say, I'm immune from liability. I know I solicited nude photos uh, of, of women who never said, yes, you can post this, right? But I enjoy immunity from liability because the law says that I'm not gonna be considered a publisher or a speaker for someone else's content. And courts have construed that provision really broadly, right? And so what it leads to is lots of great things about the internet, right? We've got what I think are kind of virtuous actors um, like Twitter and Facebook and Google who do their best in certain circumstances to address spam and copyright violations and non-consensual pornography, threats, cyber stalking, right? Um, but you've got a lot of actors who in fact encourage and solicit illegality and they get to be immune from liability. So what we talk about in our paper is the possibility that the, the immunity shouldn't be unconditional. That there should be some, you get the immunity, so we don't wanna tear down the immunity, right? Keep the immunity, but just premise it on you've engaged in reasonable practices and responses to illegality on your platform, right? So if you had a site whose, sole reason for being was be sex-based, then, and they're told, well, they know because they're soliciting it. Do they deserve the immunity from liability? Absolutely not, right, in, in our view. Uh, it's a controversial position, but it's actually quite modest, right, because we just had, and this is the Quinton I've just been writing about, the, uh, there's a, we just passed an exception to Section 230, which I have to say, if when you told me 10 years ago I started writing about Section 230, we would ever come to any agreement about changing Section 230, I would have said, you're joking me, it'll never happen. But it recently did, Congress recently got its complete act together and passed what is, a, just not as a terrible law, uh, and it's Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act, which is both too narrow and too broad, right? And it's gonna have platforms sit on their hands 
because it says we criminalize platforms that knowingly facilitate sex trafficking, right? So knowingly facilitate, what does that mean? That could include, you know, you engage in filtering. So that worries me, and I think that was a bad move. And so Bobby and I suggest, a, a, I think, more modest suggestion, but one that also I really like uh, the, we have some, do you want to talk about the ways in which we're going to curtail it? Sure. Or no, do not promise to do 230. Oh, I would love for you to keep going. Okay. We just are stuck on time, and I wanted okay. to have a, a little bit of public um, Q&A real quick. But it's also helpful context for, for those who are new to this issue to understand that um, from the tech community standpoint, so this is a, this is a deep, worthwhile conversation. But from the, from the tech community's uh, perspective, there is there's actually surprising unanimity amongst uh, these these platforms and, and these these technology companies, and they they simply articulate, look, we're we're sympathetic and empathetic to all of the challenges that you're trying to address. However, um, this immunity, this is their argument, this immunity is what has given rise to a free and open internet that we enjoy. And if if, if we constrain Section 230 further, if we do some type of carve out, uh, you're going to incentivize us to actually be more aggressive in our censorship because we're going to be seeking to um, immunize ourselves from legal jeopardy. Now, I think there's all kinds of strings on that conversation that are worth pulling, and maybe we'll do a separate, you know, uh, event on that. But right now, I want to keep us scared about deep fakes. But that's helpful, and I highly recommend downloading this paper. Um, Bobby told you where you can get it. Uh, just search their names in deep fakes. Uh, it's worth it. Now, I think we've got uh, a little bit of time for maybe two or possibly three uh, questions from the audience. So Game of Thrones does deep fakes, right? Um, they, they film 10 different endings, um, and only HBO knows which one is authentic. You live in a world in which uh, generation is democratic and detection is concentrated. Uh, in that type of world, uh, is it that bad? In other words, if detection is concentrated in media outlets, doesn't that give them a dimension along which to seize a mantle of credibility uh, relative to other organizations or entities or platforms that are incapable of verifying information? Not only does that cut down on the deepfake problem, it seems to minimize the liar's dividend. And it also, by the way, describes a world um, that maybe isn't that bad where traditional media institutions relative to more, uh, uh, you know, ma and pop um, populist outfits regain a bit of control over the accuracy of sourcing and that projects into a community that treats it that way. I'll, I'll just say briefly that, first of all, I was excited when you brought up Game of Thrones, and I thought you were just going to ask about that in general. <laughs> a little disappointed with where that question went, um, but that's okay. Uh, so the, the market currently, the information marketplace for news in particular, doesn't give me as much hope as I would like to believe that the larger swath of the market wants to see competition on accuracy and truth and objectivity. Um, that said, uh, certainly the idea behind sort of the stuff Steve Brill is working on and others, sort of the rotten tomatoes for the validity of news, that kind of measure. Um, I love seeing that. I sure hope it takes off. And it become, if it becomes the case that some degree of curation on, on 
validity of the information can be brought back into the information space, that'd be great. Um, I'm a little worried that there's a, just a lot of people who aren't really interested in that and or really don't buy that there is objectivity and don't believe that the entities that would then end up being the highest scoring ones really are objective. That they're, uh, it's all spin, it's all, it's all, you say that's truth, that's your truth, I've got mine. And that assumes time. A lot of this is so time contingent. So if it's a night for an election, uh, it, it's there's too little time, and let's say it goes viral, and it's not ABC, NBC, CBS, right? It is just viral on Twitter and so many different platforms, and it can change an election, right? Same with the intentional falsehood that is intended to manipulate that causes a riot, right? It's too, it's the, it's the time sensitivity question, right? You're presuming a world in which there's context for counter speech and checks. So if we have a brief question real quick, Tyler? Uh, yeah, Taylor Barkley of Charles Koch Institute. Um, the discussion seems to have centered on kind of like the pre-big events. Maybe some deep fake video happens night before election. Every, it goes viral, situation happens, but then, you know, the analysis a week later, it's like, whoa, this is really false. What about the, what will culture look like after that when it is broadly believed and shown to be the case that, oh, there's this technology out there, this scenario can happen, what does culture look like kind of after the first big deep fake effective event? My biggest fear about all this is that when there is a really big sort of the crossing that Rubicon, when it happens and then everyone has the two week later realization like, oh man, look what, look what's going on. That's what's going to really widen the playing field for those who would deny the truth when confronted with embarrassing video and audio and enable them to sort of say, oh no, you've heard, you heard about this. this. This is like that other thing. Wasn't me. That's the liar's dictionary. That's right? the liar's dictionary. That's totally. Yeah. Friends, I, I, I can't allow us to, to go over any further, but I'm sure you guys will be willing to stick around a little bit. And uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for coming to Heritage. And uh, please join me in thanking our guests. Thanks for doing this.